Good evening. My name is Julie Gillette, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative at Harvard Divinity School. Tonight, we have the pleasure of welcoming Pakchok Rinpoche and Eric Solomon to speak about their new book, Radically Happy, A User's Guide to the Mind. Pakchok Rinpoche is part of a new generation of Tibetan Buddhist teachers who seek to combine tradition wisdom teachings, traditional wisdom teachings with participation in modern life. He was born in 1981 to a family known for their spiritual accomplishment and recognized as the seventh Pakchok Rinpoche, an incarnation of a great teacher and meditation master. He received ordination from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and completed traditional training in Buddhist philosophy and meditation, studying with some of the most ac accomplished masters of modern times, his main teachers being his grandfather, Kyabje Toku Urjin Rinpoche and Yoshoken Rinpoche. Rinpoche completed his education at Zongsar Institute of Advanced Buddhist Studies, where he received the Kempo title. He seeks to combine the scholarly tradition of his studies with the experiential tradition of his main teachers. Eric Solomon has a career as a Silicon Valley technology entrepreneur and now as an author and innovative meditation teacher. He's been interested in understanding the mind and how it functions, both as a user experience designer and as a mind hacker. Eric's interest in human-computer interaction took shape when, as a teenager, he taught programming to children and school teachers. As a participant in the Logo Group at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, he interacted with some of the world's deepest thinkers on how to make intelligent machines. This experience inspired a passion to understand the mind and how it functions, and led him to the study of Buddhist theories of the mind. Eric has studied and practiced Buddhism for more than two decades and completed a traditional Tibetan Buddhist three-year retreat. He's been invited to speak and lead seminars and retreats in corporate settings such as the World Bank and Silicon Valley tech firms, as well as in prisons, temples, and Buddhist centers across the US and Europe. This evening, they'll join in a conversation around their recently released book, Radically Happy, which is an effort to make meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhist thought accessible to a modern, secular audience. Please join me in welcoming Pakchok Rinpoche and Eric Solomon. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much, and uh, very happy to be back again. Um, the first I want to say that uh, why we make together and our connection actually is uh, first is a friendship uh, over uh, 20 years and the second is uh, my meditation teacher actually is the uh, first one is my grandfather so his meditation teacher was my grandfather too so because of that is have some kind of connections and um, so that is number one number two I'm actually giving teachings going to variety of countries and world and meeting different people. The one thing that I keep coming up is the way to approach is not actually uh, effective enough. I know that people like to hear it, what I want to say, but the way how I do it is not actually going through the message. Then I met Again, five years ago, after he came from the practice and we met up, then he's had a lot of experiences through doing all the programmings and all that, and he had the similar idea, I thought I have a similar idea. Then we say, okay, we, why we don't do something? Then uh, slowly, slowly we came up, then we came up this book. Now the, the, the book is really funny, because the first is radically, and the second is happiness. So a lot of uh, practitioners, all practitioners, um, you know, meditation practitioners or whatever practitioners, when they hear of word hope, happiness, it's not so appealing. They feel like it's, oh yeah, again, it's a cheap, cheap stuff or, or uh, <clears throat> dealing with uh, your own thing or some kind of, you know, self-help book type of the word. That's why we put radically. Because um, my friend Eric said that radically Latin actually means root. So root of happiness or 
radical actually means doing a little bit different way. So that is the reason behind we put radically. And some of the friends that I met, uh, they always saying that to me that, oh, it's very difficult to be happy. And um, so I say, okay, this kind of person, then that's why we put happiness for you to understand. We don't want to say freedom. We don't want to say big, big words to, to explain. Why, I choose, uh, why we chose actually happiness word, the word of happiness, because everybody actually understand kind of. Of course, they understand differently, but they, everybody wants that happiness. And uh, some of my uh, colleagues, of course, I thought about it, you know, I'm a quite traditional person as a meditation uh, a devotee under my meditation guidance masters. So um, that it's okay to use happiness word. And actually, uh, in my understanding, you can. Because in the meditation devotees, they always say it's short-term results or short-term happiness and long-term bliss or long-term freedom. And because of that reason, when you don't see any benefits right now, and people are not going to be appealed towards the practice to gain some um, freedom from in the future. So you don't see any result now, you know that you're not going to put effort to have result in the future. So the whole idea is you need to get some result right now. So that is the whole reason, uh, reason behind that it came up. And um, so in this idea, in the book, we have a, created three perspectives of idea of happiness. The first actually called a basic happiness. Uh, is kind of developing um, steadiness within yourself. And they have three steps in there. And the second one is called interconnected happiness. It's actually developing um, warm-hearted, this is what Eric like to say, and I like to say the word is called kind. Not be kind or not kindness, just the word of kind. Uh, to feel kind, not to yourself, not to others. Just to feel the kind is very, very important. So cultivating compassion, cultivating warm-hearted kind is the second inter interconnected happiness. And they have three steps again. And the third one called radical happiness, they have three steps. So the idea of the radical happiness, the first step is actually called cultivating the dignity. And it's a very important that in life that when you have, you know exactly what you want to become, or you know exactly who you are, or you are okay with yourself, or situations, or meditations, or whatever, you can actually achieve. It's achievable. When you're confused, you have doubt, then you cannot achieve, and you have a lot of difficulties. So cultivating dignity is very important. And that's why the first in radical happiness, actually called cultivating dignity, is the first step. And the whole idea that Eric and me, we came out of the book is, no, don't give too many talks. Give them what to do. Because um, I go to secular section or religious section or philosophical section or meditation section. Whatever section I go, they, everybody say the same thing. The love is important, kind is important, compassion is important, happiness is important. Everybody says that secular way, or a religious way, or a meditation way, or philosophical way. Everybody talk about that. But the point is that we all talk about it. But the, my question is how to get it. What is the step by step by step, step by step by step, tell me how to do it. Telling, I need to have that. Of course I know that. Without you telling me, I know that I want ha I'm seeking for happiness. I, I don't want to seek for suffering. Of course, that is something everybody is, is like that. But then the point is how to get it. So that's why in that book, we actually put together 28 exercises. And we don't want to use too much of the word of meditation because now there's so much use that meditation, the word, I feel actually heavy when you hear, when I come to America in US, and when I hear the meditation, I feel heavy. I don't know why. When I go back to Asia, I, can, I hear meditation, I don't feel heavy. I feel as, yeah, it's a kind of thing, right? But when I come to America in the US, and, you know, I say, meditation, I feel like that. So because of that reason, I, we use the word called exercise. And uh, that actually is true. It's a mentally, mentally exercise. So that is the idea that I want to begin with. And before I'm going to give to a friend, to uh, Eric, I want to say that 
When I went to see my meditation teacher, and I was uh, 18 years old, I think that, that is uh, one of the, the biggest um, um, kind of, uh, how you say, um, the biggest move in my life. Uh -huh. and actually, I study in like, like this, have a Harvard Divinity Religious School. Like that, I actually went to Buddhist, you know, really Buddhist college. They only talk about Buddhists, and of course they talk about Hinduism and all other religions, of course. But actually, I am atheist. I, I believe in atheists in the religion, into the, my, schol my scholar when I study. I actually don't like to be in Buddhist. So whole school uh, I have, I have 30 students, and I am the only is uh, atheist, Buddhist atheist. So I'm a very short temper, I'm very angry, I'm pissed off with life, and uh, I punch the walls. I don't punch people because I'm a Buddhist. Kind of Buddhist ethic, but not, not the Buddhist beliefs, but Buddhist ethic, kind of. So because of this whole reason, I don't want to punch a person, but I want to punch the wall. And it's true. So I went back to my holiday, I went to see my father, and I told him, I said, something is wrong with me. And my meditation teacher says, come right now. So I went to see my teacher, and he's a really lovely person. He really take care of me, and he's very kind. And I, I went up there, and I said, please teach me meditation. And he just goes there. That he's, he didn't teach meditation first. He said, okay. Don't be like dog. Be like lion. And I said, I love dogs. <laughs> I don't know why my, he's saying that. He said that you think, you reflect yourself. When you want to be angry, you chase after the anger and you become the anger. You actually threw a stone at a dog. Dog chase the stone. That means you're actually chasing the feeling or thought in your, huh? arising in your mind. Then you become that, like a dog. But when you throw the stone at a lion, lion not going to chase after the stone. Lion going to jump on the person who throwing the stone. <laughs> like that, when you have a feeling to be angry because of habit, you have a thought, you have many, many single, small thoughts, short thoughts to be angry. Or you have some condition that makes you angry. Moment that, he said, don't go after that. Look in towards who actually seeing that, who actually becoming that. Look inwardly towards the who sees. Then you become the lion. Then he said to me, you just go back and reflect me. Next day I come back. I say, yeah, yeah. third day I come back. After a week later I come back. Then he said, whether you believe or whether you don't believe, doesn't matter to your anger. Isn't it? He said, yes, meditation master. Now you want to meditate? Yes, I like to meditate. Then he begins a meditation. So that is the thing that I am really in interested in the meditation because of this example. So the point is, don't be like dog. Be like lion. Don't be like dog. Be like a lion. So now I'm going to give to friend Eric. <laughs> we have a real challenge in this life right now because um, technology is amazing. There's so many uh, benefits. And I remember actually there's a few people in the room tonight who had just enormous uh, profound effect on my life. One is my aunt Cynthia Solomon who was working in the 60s and 70s with the, some of the most brilliant people I ever met. She was equally brilliant, by the way. Uh, Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert, looking at how, you, how people think, how children think, how you can um, make computationally rich environments so kids can learn mathematics through culture rather than simply through learning by rote a bunch of equations. And um, uh, Marvin's daughter, Margaret, is sitting here. We grew up together. And uh, Marvin, I think, said to me when I was 10 years old, you know, self doesn't really exist. 
They, Cynthia Marvin and Seymour, they never condescended to children. They always talked to us like we were adults. And he um, said, you know, it's just, the mind is just a bunch of, of, of things that come together, uh, uh, algorithms, that their interdependence creates this illusion of self. And then my friend Gary Drescher sitting back there, who uh, was very inspired by a lot of this and actually for many years theorized how you can actually make intelligence in machines. And he and I used to argue uh, until late in the night. And he, I think I affected uh, his book a little bit and he affected mine a little bit. And, um, and it's, a, it's a rich ongoing dialogue we had to this day. And so this is some of the, the, the wonderful parts of technology is it gets us to think and to create and um, find new ways to communicate and possibly even um, uh, create learning environments that we never dreamed possible. The other side of it is, of course, the constant unrelenting interruption. We all have this thing in our pocket called a smartphone. And it's, it's um, I mean, just on this book tour, I get WeChats, WhatsApps, emails, SMSs. Um, uh, you know, phone calls, whatever they are, and, and et cetera. And, you know, it's wonderful. Everybody's trying to be supportive or trying. I've had people I haven't seen for decades show up at some of our talks. And I could be doing something every moment of the day, even while I'm sleeping. We're all trying to cope with this, everybody. Uh, last night, uh, we, I was talking to some teenagers about how they, how they're, uh, coping with it. And the fact that they, uh, one of them just had a false alarm at their school where um, they thought there was a shooter. And she said, you know, we see it all day long on our telephones, how our parents aren't protecting us. And, you know, in the old days, I remember hiding under my desk. We were being trained, you know, in case there was nuclear attack, as if hiding under our desk would do anything. And, uh, you know, okay, that was frightening, but imagine, I mean, today it's all there, it's all so visceral. And all of us are trying to find a way to cope. All of us together. And a little bit, what Rinpoche and I each in different ways began to notice, I was working on, on leading the development of a meditation program, both online and offline, uh, in the early part of the 2010s. Rinpoche's been uh, traveling. I've known him since he was that bratty teenager that he's talking about, by the way. And he's just blossomed into this amazing teacher. But while he's been on his you know, teaching tours, he started to notice something very similar, that where we traditionally start in teaching about the mind and meditation and compassion, it's, it's, it's not always meeting people where they are in today's always-on, completely wired, world. So we started thinking, well, what could we give ourselves? What could we give our friends? What could we give our family, our students, that would meet them where they are? That after just even reading, well, actually it didn't start out as a book, it actually started as a program and then we realized no one knows us, so we better write a book. But what could we, what could we give them that in this book that after just a few pages they could taste something meaningful? that could affect their lives almost immediately. So this, we built this book around this, this ancient example, this, this don't be a, like a dog, be like a lion. We're always chasing our thoughts and emotions like a dog chasing stones. Instead of turning to look at where those thoughts and emotions come from, who, the who. Instead of always going this way, turning to look. You know, Everyone knows we can't find happiness in uh, circumstances. And yet, in the midst of a perfect day, you've all done it, I do it, lean back and you say with a sigh, oh, too bad every day can't be like this. In the middle of this great moment, we're already a little bit thinking too bad. Is there anyone who's never said this, too bad every day can't be like this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> We've been, I've been asking this the entire tour. Here's the one. Tonight I found out. Thank you. So we, we have to put our attention sometimes in a different place. It's not that 
thinking is always bad. Of course, I was a programmer for decades. I couldn't do it without thinking. My wife's an artist. She lets her mind wander to enhance her, create, spark her creative process. And there's a lot of good science that shows mind wandering, this letting yourself daydream is really beneficial for creativity. But there's also something else that science has told us, which is they gave this thing on people's iPhones that um, they, 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 it was an experiment done at UC San Francisco. And they uh, would ask people several times a day, how are you and what are you doing? And what they found out after collecting about a half a million data points is that people are far more likely to be well with themselves, content, happy, if they're present moment focused. Even stuck in terrible Bay Area traffic, you're more likely to be slightly, more likely to be well within yourself, just being present in the face of that traffic than you are daydreaming about something wonderful. The, the, um, Activity that people uh, found um, was most likely to bring them into the present moment was lovemaking. So I've always wondered, so there you are making love. It's a fantastic present moment experience. And the phone buzzes. You go, oh, sorry, I got to go answer the app. But anyway, um, maybe it was just a special time. OK, so what do we do? What do we do? We, be, we have to. It's not thinking, but habitual thinking. This constant habit of evaluating the quality of experience, always measuring how we're doing minute by minute, and then beginning to think about it. So I might drink this water, and mm, very good. But you know, I, like, I live in France now. I like the mineral taste of the water. They're better. And, and actually, you know, right over the border, because I'm in Spain, it's, I like this one brand I particularly like. It's uh, Vichy Catalan. That's even better than any of the French waters I've had. I wonder, I'm going back there soon. I, I wonder if I could stop on the way home and pick up. And you see, I start with the present moment experience, and all of a sudden, I'm in Spain shopping for water. This happens how many times a day to us? So by, by training the mind, to be more like a lion and less like a dog. That's the solution. So right now, we're going to try something. It's called creating space. You don't have to sit in any special position. Just be comfortable. And if you like, you can close your eyes. You can also have them open, but we're going to imagine something. And so you just close your eyes and just let the room fall away. Just imagine the room begins to dissolve. And Everywhere is this brilliant, wide open, pristine blue sky going infinitely in every direction. Nothing below us, no clouds, no trees, no earth, nothing above us. Just this immaculate blue sky. So just take a moment and make this, your imagination of this as vivid as you possibly can. Not only do you see the sky, this pristine, immaculate, wide open sky, but allow yourself to feel the spaciousness of the sky. Just relax. If there's any tension in your body, consider that it begins to dissolve into the wide open expanse of sky. Any anxious thoughts, they can just dissolve into the sky. Feel the spaciousness. Let your, place your attention on this spacious, wide open feeling of the sky that completely develop, envelops and surrounds you.
you find that you're beginning to think about thoughts, just at that moment you realize, bring yourself, your attention, back to this spacious feeling. Reinvigorate your imagined wide open blue sky. Allow yourself to feel it. And just leave your attention there for a bit. Okay. Now, if you like, you can gradually come back into the room and join us here. Anybody feel a little bit spacious feeling in the chest? Like open, open up. <clears throat> the creating space is beneficial for when you are physically tired, especially when you are um, going through a very difficult time and your mind completely thinking about it or try to solve these situations or try to go through these situations. And actually, your mind going to lose the space. You know, completely suck into the situations, and you lost, and you feel uptight. You know, uptight in the chest, uptight in the shoulder and chest. So that time, that kind of creating, you know, space of practice is very beneficial. And sometimes, funny, funny, that when you are doing that and you're doing a lot of work, and physically very tired, then you do this great space, you feel sleepy. But the sleepy is really in here, like, 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 like this, you know, it completely drags you down. And that is the, how effective I feel sometimes, because that you don't know how to sleep well sometimes. So you just go to nap, usually, I, traditionally, we don't, do, we don't ask you that, but sometimes for your health, you go to nap for that moment for 10 minutes. It's really good power nap. So creating space is something that you can actually see that you can change, that the state of your mind actually can change. So what that actually helps you, that gives you kind of experience. It's very interesting when I talk to Eric about the science and this research, all these things, and I said, the most important thing for me personally is not somebody telling me what helps other people. I want to know myself what does help to me. So I always um, debating, <laughs> you know, I don't like this one, I like this, I don't like this, we debate. So that's why it's all really good, because you keep fresh. Because when I did the creating space, I want to see and see what I really actually feel. And I give you a, a story that many times our practice is all focus, breath, focus to your breath, 
creating space is not actually focusing space. It's actually feeling the spaciousness. It's thinking the spaciousness, but the feel the space. What that means, your mind actually becomes very bigger perspective. It opens up. So when we talk about each other, why we do the mistakes is we don't understand you. And what kind of meditation we do? What kind of mental exercise do? We do this way. All right? Creating space is going this round. Feel the space going around. So that means it actually helps you to open up. Helps you to relax your perceptions, your concepts of this and that. So I think what I, I'm going to do is, first I'm going to, I'm going to say the three things that, that is we discuss about it is a basic happiness have three steps. Number one, always react to thoughts the same way. Number two, relax the comparing. Number three, be present. So this is three uh, steps of uh, basic happiness. So I'm going to keep to Eric about the number one. So. Uh, always react to thoughts the same way. So you notice here, when we were creating space, I said, if a thought comes, or you start noticing your thinking, at that moment, bring your attention back to the spacious feeling. So we train our minds to, come to, to not always chase thoughts and emotions. And we use an object, in this case, this feeling of spaciousness. So mindfulness practice, common way, and we talk about it in the book, is to focus on your breath, to feel your breath going in and going out of your, your body, your, your lungs. And you, if you, you have a thought, that's okay. You just stay with the breath. The point is, you could say it's always not react to thoughts the same way. So this is the beginning of turning away from chasing thoughts habitually. We, we call this becoming more present moment focused. <coughs> the second one is called relaxing comparing. So really interesting part is many times I'm happy myself. But when I start comparing, then I become unhappy. One time I, in a kind of magazine, I'm, I forgot which magazine is, they're saying the why Tom Cruise is so attractive. And I heard, I, I heard in Harvard, they did this research, I think Harvard, they did research about dimension of the, these in the face of the Tom Cruise. And they have this kind of exact diamond shape, I don't know what, they come lines. And Tom Cruise, the face is exact that. And everybody sees that face is going to be attractive. And they have some other photos with that kind of dimension. So of course, I cut my photo. <laughs> and try to, try to put into that dimension. The sad part is, <laughs> for me, is that my face go beyond the dimension. <laughs> because Tom Cruise is a more linear face and I'm, I'm a more circle face. So I become so sort of unhappy and, you know. But then interesting part is, you see, whenever you compare, Externally, externally things to compare and what computer I should buy, what should, shoe I should buy, it's okay with that. I'm not object with that. When we do comparing internally things, like, am I happy? I saw somebody, oh, this person is more happier than me. Oh, my companion is good? Wow, that one looks more nicer. So when you go like that, internal things, you're not going to be happy. Like the meditation, like the exercise, yesterday was so excellent, but today I put 10 minutes, but I didn't feel the spaciousness. Yesterday I just need only one minute. I feel fresh and cool and I go out. So always you compare, always. So the comparing is okay when it's, you know how to use healthily, but we use most of the time unhealthily. Why? Comparing is just not so bad. When you say comparing, it doesn't sound so bad. But do you know, when I saw my face is not in that dimension, the comparing, simple comparing, stupid comparing, 
that actually affected somehow my confidence of my look. But it's a very, very subtly. Then I walk out, somebody looking at me in a little strange way. And that helps empower that doubt that I have. The doubt becomes now absolute. When the doubt becomes absolute, I can see myself not nice through the mirror. So do you see that this just gentle of that kind of uh, uh, comparison actually uh, harms your confidence, and when the confidence goes down, the dignity affected. So confidence is always is something to do, or I have something to do, I achieve that, then I'm confident. I have something experiences, I have confidence. I done that, I have a confidence. I have a goal, I have a project, I achieve it, I have a confidence. But the dignity is not based on the projects. Dignity is not based always of what you have. Dignity actually is a being. Dignity is not based on behaving. Dignity actually is a being. Dignity you need to see and you need to cultivate. But you cannot, uh, dignity is not always dependent on something that you do, you achieve, then I feel very dignity. We don't say that, I'm very confident. So dignity actually is a being. The confidence is something that you succeed and you have some experiences. So it's the dignity and the confidence I see very different. And the pride and the dignity is a very big difference too. Because the pride is actually ta move, moving target. So when we talk about these things, when we talk about these things, very important to go back to the, go back to the point. Don't be like dog. Be like lion. That metaphor is very, very important. Because when you don't go, go, when you don't go into that metaphor, that example, then the cultivating dignity is not going to be so clear to you. So it's very interesting. So the relaxing comparing is very important. You understand? So now, many people are telling me, why you need to put this relaxing comparing? Because when you are cultivating something and you have relaxing the compare, you actually can maintain your happiness much longer. I am happy who I am. I am happy what I have. When you don't do the internalized comparing, actually you're happy. You can maintain that happiness longer. moment you do the comparing, you don't enjoy what you have and you don't enjoy what you are. So that's why the radical way of doing a little differently is that relaxing the comparing is a radical way of doing it. Not normally people do that. Okay? So this is number two. Number three is be present. And this is a lot about how we bring what we've realized, this, uh, you can say, present moment awareness that we realize in not reacting to thoughts um, or always react to thoughts the same way, that's revealed by relaxing, comparing, how we bring that into daily activity, or even more importantly, how daily activity can enhance it further. This, um, this it becomes, because we're all very busy. We can't, don't have so much time to just sit and, and uh, train in our attention. So we need something to support us as we go through the day so that life itself becomes a, a, something that helps us uncover this kind of present moment awareness. So I think if you go to... So we, we want to go jump, we're going to jump a little bit faster. So interconnected happiness have three steps. First one is... Contemplate the interconnected nature of reality. Second, relax judging. Third, be attentive. So again, seeing how we're actually connected to universe, places, environment, family, everything. This is number one. Number two is relaxing and judging. And I'm telling you how we judge. And they have a science there behind, but I think we have no much time. But in, in, you can, in, in, in the book, they have all this kind of stuff. How fast we judge and how not easy to let go your judgment. You know, it, it's so strong. And so that's why, why we cannot actually feel connected. Because of the judgment. The first thing. 
And when you have judgment, the judgment, what, what judgment do? Judgment has the tail, I like to say, but the judgment always produces emotions. Shit! That kind of thing, you know? <laughs> like that. Noticing is a cease. You see that, but you don't have extra emotions. That's why it's noticing. So you want to maintain your happiness to being connected to the family like that. Don't judge right away to notice that person's not happy, the person's scolding at me. Notice that, but don't take personally. Don't judge the person or don't take personally. Judgment actually creates every single pain and uncomfortableness. Everything arises well, from the judgment. Loneliness. Loneliness too. So I have a one-time story that I'd like to say something. I think, who does here meditation? Kind of. All right. So I'd like to say something to all of meditation devotees. <laughs> Somebody asked me, do you do meditate? I say, I don't do. I'm a devotee of meditation. Sometimes I feel shy to I'm doing meditation. To look at my behaviors, you know. <laughs> so I'd like to say this. Meditation actually is blind. Meditation actually is blind when you do not learn to reflect yourself. Or introspect. Introspect. Huh? Introspect. So you need to sit and before you do creating space, reflect, introspect, okay. I'm pissed off yesterday <laughs> and I create space for a few minutes, two minutes. After introspect again, be aware that I'm no good to behave like this. So introspecting is a very important key. So I give you one example of myself. Do you know they have one disease that they told me in many people has that they look in the mirror and they see themselves fat and they don't want to eat food and they become very thin. I don't know the, the name. Anorexia. What? Anorexia. Yes. They all know it. Endo what? Anorexia. That one? I have opposite of that. <laughs> I'm not getting to you. Whenever I look in the mirror, I see feet. I see myself fit. And almost like V-shape. <laughs> almost I can see the small line of the six-pack, but I don't see it, but I see in a mirror. And the moment I wear my clothes and start moving, I can, I can feel this other part of the body is start moving, you know, everywhere that, that doesn't feel like me. But when I touch it, I know they have something extra that I want to get out. When I check the weight, I can feel that weight is over. I went to see doctor, they said, you are obese, medically obese. And I'm saying, I look in the mirror, I'm okay. So I'm, I have an issue opposite of that. So what I do is, I check the, the scale. I do exercise. I don't just look at the mirror saying, I'm fine. I don't do that. I always introspect with the different tools, but I'm not going to be crazy about that. I don't judge myself. I don't compare other people, but I'm just noticing I need to improve for my health. So that is the judgment. Don't judge, but to have noticing. Again, comparing judgment, when you do doing stuff, stuff yourself, that is the first thing you actually, you are the first victim or you are the first patient that you're going to hurt yourself first. So now, going back to the cultivating, going back to radical, um, radically, radically, radical happiness, radically three happiness. parts. The last one. The so first is cultivating, cultivating dignity. Second is relaxed clinging. Third. Be aware. So, cultivating dignity is very, very important. As a personal, personal, as a person. Really, just think, look yourself. I know so many people, front is like this. But inside, it's like a chicken. <laughs> I'm no kidding. Some people, outside is like, you know, like a chicken. But inside is so strong. You know, some people outside, inside shares. Dignity is actually called steady. Dignity is steadiness. Dignity is uh, being. Dignity, you know, 
that you actually are, how you say, you, you are not that bad. <laughs> you are okay. <laughs> You're not that bad. Right? I, I have some bad habits, but I'm not bad. That actually is dignity. I am bad. That means you losing your dignity. Do you see the differences? So cultivating dignity is very, very crucial in happiness. Okay? When you have no dignity, everything becomes false out. Number two is <laughs> relax, relax clinging. the clinging. So I want to give you another example. I think, you know, we have a good time each other, right? We have clinging. So I give you another point. How you measure, I'm, very, I'm sad today, okay? I'm very sad today. I'm very, very sad today. How you measure, I'm sad, very sad, very, very sad. How you measure that? Of course, we say this, right? But how you measure that when you're actually saying that? What, what kind of measuring, what kind of feeling that you have, you saying that? You ever thought about it? Yes? yes. You thought about it? Somebody who you do not know say, eat shit. You're sad and angry. Somebody, like I say, your companion, your lover, says, eat shit. You're very sad. But someone, your children, who really you love, who you give, and the children says, you eat shit. And that one hurts very, very sad. You understand? Because it's not the person we're seeing. It's actually the clinging towards the person. That is the point. The emotion that we have, the pain, eat shit, eat shit, eat shit. The three people say that word. But one is sad. One is very sad. One is very, very sad. How you know this? Because one is eh, okay. But one is okay. But one third one is very, very Holding, clinging, I love you, I've done everything for you, you know, like that. And that one tells you, say, eat shit. You know, husband tells wife, shit, eat shit. Wife tells husband, eat shit. It's all, all the time going on. It doesn't really matter. Of course, it's, it's very sad, but it's not bad. You understand? One thing, the measuring that I want to say, the relaxing, clinging, is to see that how, how to prevent that very, very sad things. How to prevent that is relaxing the clinging is actually helping you to maintain the happiness much better. That is the only point I'm saying. So when you look carefully in the book, 28 exercise, exercise. it doesn't give you idea of how to be happy, how to say, oh, I'm love, and love is everywhere. It's not like that. It's a something grounded, something you see it, something you reflect it, something you really experience it. That is the only way to improve. This is what I want to say. So I give to Eric. So let's go back to the lion and the dog because that's what's really the key thing going on here in Radical We need to ask question answers. Hmm? Question answers. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do lion and dog mm -hmm. and bring it to an end and then that. Mm -hmm. So um, every talk we give is totally different so we always have to check a little bit. And uh, Rinpoche really needs to be at the airport tonight on time. <laughs> Two things. So, even though we've relaxed the clinging, there are a few things we can't totally let go of because the plane is going to Germany tonight. So, um, lion and dog. We, the lion knows its strength. It doesn't have to walk around the jungle saying all the time, I'm strong, I'm ferocious. Dignity's like that. Dignity is when you just know, you have confidence. So I was a pretty good programmer. I was actually a really good programmer. I knew it. When I met someone else who was better, I didn't feel bad about myself. I appreciated it. That's dignity. If I said was jealous, well, then that's pride. So the lion has dignity. Lion knows its strength. 
then when we come to relax clinging, we're turning our attention completely. So before a little bit, we've been indirect. We're, we're thinking about, um, we're placing our attention on something so that whenever thoughts come, we remain fully present in the face of whatever rises in our mind. Relaxed clinging, we actually begin to use thoughts themselves as the support. And then be aware, we use noticing the knower of the thoughts and emotions. We totally turn towards the stone thrower. And what happens when a lion turns towards the stone thrower? If you're throwing stones at a lion, and the lion turns to look at you because he doesn't care about the stone, you either run away or you're lunch. At that point, either way, there are no more stones. So this moment of turning to look to see really and truly who it is that knows, what it is that knows, noticing the knower of the thoughts and emotions, the thoughts and emotions gradually, naturally by themselves, subside. So that's, now we've done radical happiness. Uh, thank you. And are there any questions? a microphone. Ooh. Amplification, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have spent many, many, many days in uh, silent meditation. Um, Wonderful. And one of the things that comes up uh, is to, especially for me, I talk too much. <laughs> so, um, but I'm very careful about the no noticing and giving myself a grade, so to speak, as a teacher, um, how well I have chosen my words because the actual words themselves do have power and a lot of it's negative power, at least in English. And it, it really does hurt. And some, I, I heard somebody say, well, it's just slang, you know? Like for your example, you know, it's pretty negative talk when it's, even when it's just slang. We've slid into an avalanche of negative words. Mm -hmm. And those do make a, to me, I, um, I, I immediately notice them around and I try and ameliorate them in some way or, or mm -hmm. shape. But do you have any, any thoughts about uh, an anecdote or something that- uh, Don't listen. Turned it around? <laughs> Don't, listen. Don't listen negative <laughs> words. Okay. Like I choose to not to watch. One question. Um, you mentioned briefly about the interconnected, uh, thank you. You mentioned briefly about the interconnected nature of things, and I think uh, a lot of people take that to mean the physical interconnected nature of things. But um, could you talk just very briefly about another aspect, and maybe a slightly more subtle aspect of that is the emotional interconnectedness 100%. of things, and how the, the speech like that could affect everybody. In the it's so strange, like when the mother meditate, the children actually get better. And this is really, my parents ask me, Rinpoche, how do I teach my children to meditate? I say, first, how are you going to meditate? This is number one. Number two, when you are, have a space, you can actually make other people have space. When you are nervous, you actually give them some kind of nervous. When you have a little bit unhappy, you make the atmosphere unhappy. So that is the point that actually interconnected means we somehow we are kind of connected. We are always feeling something right, something wrong. This is what I like to say, interconnected. And there's no question that we all inherit habits from our culture, the way we were raised, the traumas we suffered as children. And, um, and that, you know, that's, uh, that's interconnectedness. That's, that's, how, that's the thing that, that we, um, well, that's actually preventing us often from actually really seeing interconnectedness is all these habits that we've acquired as we, from the time we were born until now. And if you're Buddhist, you'd say from countless lifetimes until now. So of course, you have to, you have to be aware. That's the whole point of, we didn't get into it so much tonight, but if you read in the book, how you contemplate interconnectedness, bring it to mind, make it conscious so that you can really be mm -hmm. free of it. Okay. Okay, one minute. Oh, sorry. 
Speaking of uh, interconnectedness and mothers and children, um, I was thinking of buying this book as a gift for both my uh, mother and sister, my mother who's uh, in retirement and my sister who's just entering into adulthood. Mm. But I know that it, on Christmas Day, if they both get the book, neither of them will read it. <laughs> so so qu my question is, which one do you think I should give the book to? <laughs> I well, think I'm going to choose first his mother. Yeah. I was going to choose. The sister? <laughs> <laughs> so it's your choice. I think, I think I get your point. Maybe you, who's the one that influences the other the most? That's who you give it to. Very good. Yes. One minute. One second, because also we have all these friends of ours on the stream. Rinpoche, you said when you come to when you come to America, you hear meditation and you feel like this. Yes. And when you go home to Asia, meditation is like this. Yes. Mm. What can we do so that everybody can feel meditation like this in our make in a our meditation make a meditation enjoyable. In, in America, I feel like meditation is like, oh, I do this, I do this, I do that. Make so like, you know, so... Bad. How do you say Doesn't make sexy. <laughs> no, no, no attractive. Yeah. In Asia, my master, they, they don't say I meditate. They don't say that. They just sit. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, how are you, yeah, yeah. Just looking at that, we know he's doing something. In America, oh, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do that, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do... Yes, but I must do 10 hours like you? I can't do that. My, my master says, you don't need to meditate first. You just do a few minutes only. He always says that. I do, nowadays, 14 hours. You know, when I was a younger time, my teacher told me to do three minutes, five minutes. And he told me, slowly you're going to know when begins to put, you know, put your time. But I don't say this in, in the beginning, I do this much, no? I just said it because you asked the question. I did not say how long I do. It's not important how you do. How you do, that is the thing. That's why I said meditation is blind until you don't do introspect reflection. You don't do that. Meditation does, does not transform you. Meditation just makes you calm, kind of that. You know, in Asia, when you do retreat, long-term retreat, three-year retreat, four-year, six, seven-year retreat, and don't see people, they come out. We don't have no idea of we need to have some kind of psychotherapy for that and telling them how to interconnect, how to do in the world. We, we, we don't worry about that. You're in the world. So just go out, talk to people, that's it. We don't take so important about it. And here, oh, Rinpoche, you know, we have long-term retreatants. They don't know how to do in the world. How do we, it's good, I think. I really cherish that. But I think that makes you vulnerable too. That you really need that. This is what I feel. But I can be wrong, 100%. 100%. I can be wrong. But I'm just saying, that's all the, my students who follow me, I say, just do how long you can. But most important, you need to have some changes. Character changes, behavior changes. Then it's good. No changes, talking, 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 doing this, doing this. I say, I don't care. That is the point I really want to make. I think it's good. Okay, one more question, then we finish. So sorry, so sorry of uh, saying this. There's one over here. Yes, one more. Bye bye. And we'll have a few minutes at the end if, if people want books signed or just come and say hello personally, that there'll be yes. a few minutes. Yeah. Um, so this is not related to your talk, but it's related to sort of what's happening in the Buddhist world and in the world. Mm -hmm. It's about teachers uh -huh. and just wondering what you think, what the role of teachers is and what our 
relationship with a teacher should be? And do you think there's something cultural around a relationship with a teacher that maybe in the US, in a modern culture, we might, not, we might want a different kind of relationship that's not? I think it's, they have a lot of small, small things, factors, like culture, modern, language, emotion, all that these, these small, 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 small factors need to come together. In my situation, we have thousand years of stories of how the teacher are, how this, this, how that, all this. So for me, it's quite easy. In America, having teacher is only 40 to 50 years only. So I think it would take a long time to develop the way of American or 21st century people, not only just American, but 21st century people, how to um, balance all their relationship. Um, beginning part of the relationship is more like a respect each other respect. Then slowly, slowly becomes a kind of really like, you know, you care about it. Then slowly, slowly becomes um, more deeper in the practice, then you have devotion. But then that takes time to grow. Whether it's Tibet, it takes time to grow. It's just a human person, it takes time to grow. It, I know some people that just having devotion straight but normally it takes time to grow slowly by slowly, slowly by slowly. So traditionally, they always like to tell you that students must need, understand the teacher and teacher must need to understand the students. And these days, that kind of understanding is getting less and less because students getting more and more and more. So teacher, each other doing in a, how to behave, all these things is understood through the how you say, understanding each other. So I think my answer is going to be that. And the play of the student role is need to be understood. And the teacher's role, I think, should be more caring. So like my meditation master is very caring. After a while later, after like one of my meditation teachers is, after I spend time with month and a half, then before I go and he, you know, he hugs me, you know, very long time. Then he says, now, you are my son. You know, he, they, they, that kind of acceptance is that. And I have now a meditation master. He told me just this year, he said, oh, you are like my son. And that kind of is, 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 is very important. Yeah. So I think it would take time to develop. They should have bad situation. They should have good situation. They should go through that. In Tibet, they went through many times. They should go through all that. So they slowly by slowly, they're going to have this kind of after 50 years and now, after 100 years, then I think the 21st century, the 22nd century, American, student, American people are going to understand how actually connections are. It's you know, their own experiences going to be telling the stories, and that is how they become the culture. Yeah, it's going to take time. I, I, think. Think, I think there's one thing, just because I come from the modern Western culture. First of all, um, we, until fairly recently, there was always this kind of uh, master-disciple relationship in Western culture, whether you were studying physics or you were studying how to do carpentry. And it's natural when someone gives you gift of knowledge that you feel kind of grateful and a kind of love. Now, there's a lot of things going on in the modern world that's shaking up a lot of this stuff. We actually wrote this book, the way we wrote it is because we respect and understand that most people actually do, could benefit from, from the view that we present in the book, but it maybe aren't ready for this kind of student-teacher relationship. At the same time, we have to look, the, the, uh, like when I met Rinpoche's grandfather, I mean, he had a teacher and he had so much love for that teacher and frankly when after receiving what I received from him, uh, you know, I had so much gratitude towards him. That's normal human, that's how, it, how human interrelation works. And so I think we have to, you know, it's gonna, as Rinpoche says, it's gonna take some time, but we have to remember that this isn't a new thing. That it's always been like this. And it's actually, um, there's something quite wonderful about that kind of bond in whatever, we're, whatever discipline we're studying. 
Uh, many of you here, I assume, are, are at Harvard and learning stuff, and you have, there's maybe one professor that dramatically changed your life, and you, you have some kind of special feeling for that professor as a result. Yeah, it's, uh, need to, it's need to go through like that. And they're going to, some good to be bad, some good to be good. It's not, they all, they all need to go through yeah. this. And, um, you know, I don't have no silver bullet, <laughs> silver bullet answer. Yeah. It's just, you need to really, so many things. And very funny, like, one of my, my meditation teacher is so, so, so great. Now I look back. And many of the monks came to him saying, the Orubu, they have fake teacher there. It's really fake. And my master sit like this, listening all, you know. And my, after 10, 15 minutes of listening all this, you know, why so bad? Then my teacher looks <laughs> into the, my friend says, did this master talk about three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sankha? Then they said, yes, it's enough. <laughs> so that means he liked to, he don't like to be the policeman. Moral police. He don't want to be moral police, this bad, this good. He don't want to say this thing. He said, you should know how I teach you. You should know yourself and don't behave this way. This is how he teaches. And I learned from him. I was very, very bad people, my, myself. I like to see black and white. And after now, now I see everything gray. I have slightly black left in the corner, but mostly gray. <laughs> Takes time. Takes time. Fifteen minutes out. So, so thank, thank you. you very much, okay. everybody, and giving this opportunity, and uh, have a good connection. And thank you very much for yeah. doing it. And uh, uh, this trip, Joshua worked very, very hard. Uh, my my secretary, or I don't know, cameraman, secretary, <laughs> friend, uh, friend, <laughs> uh, uh, coordinator. I don't know what all five roles. We couldn't so, have done it. So without thank you very Joshua. much, Joshua, and thank you everybody, and thank you all the Facebook friends. Thank you. Thank you, the streamers.